Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. The suicide of Anthony Bourdain in June shocked the world, especially those who work in the industry he loved. Ironically, the night before Bourdain's suicide, the drinks world lost one of their icons, Miami's international bar superstar John LaMare who died unexpectedly in his sleep at the age of 45. In response, the newly formed Tales of the Cocktail Foundation created a new segment of their popular industry event, something they called Beyond the Bar. Intended to help the hospitality industry take care of its own, Beyond the Bar offered compelling seminars on wellness and recovery. There, we met British-born Tim Etherington Judge, whose own suicide attempt inspired him to found Healthy Hospo, a nonprofit organization designed to help bring a new healthy atmosphere to the industry he loves. It also brought journalist Kat Kinsman to town, whose recent book, High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves has put her in the epicenter of the hospitality industry's mental health crisis. Since writing the book, so many chefs reached out to Kat about their own struggles with mental health. She founded Chefs with Issues, a closed Facebook forum where people can safely talk about their own personal problems amongst peers. Both Kat Tim and others from Beyond the Bar join us on this week's show for an exploration of the issues and the possible solutions. We're taking a hard look at the industry we all love and the people who are in the trenches fighting for a better way on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, my name's Tim Etherington-Judge, and I'm the founder of Healthy Hospo. Whether it's behind the bar, on the floor, or in the kitchen, working in the hospitality industry can take its toll on one's physical and mental health. To meet industry demands, hospitality professionals often work long hours, have no set sleep schedule, and consume unhealthy diets. Stress, combined with these bad habits, can result in an emotional burden too heavy for workers to carry on their own. Tim Etherington Judge is a bartender and former brand ambassador whose story is like so many of those in the hospitality world. Following his own mental breakdown in recovery, Tim discovered how widespread mental and physical health problems are throughout the industry. To tackle it, he established Healthy Hospo, which seeks to improve the health and wellness of hospitality professionals everywhere. 
To begin, Tim tells us about his globe-trotting career in hospitality that began when he was growing up in a small town in southwest England. Hospitality that always was where my heart was at. Very fortunate to grow up on the beach, um, but it's also a very tourist-driven area. So as a young kind of teenager, the only jobs really available are jobs in hospitality. And I had a father who worked in hospitality. So my first job at 14 was working for my dad in a little coffee shop. And then I kind of progressed from there into a burger chain. And then I had like jobs in bar bags and, and doing a little bit of, of work in bars and was always kind of in hospitality. And every time I tried to escape the industry and go and get a, a different type of job, I always got sucked back in. So 2005 was a big year for me. Um, I was working at Falmouth and very um, suddenly and out of the blue, my mum passed away. Um, and I was very, very close to my mum. And that was, as a 28-year-old man, that was a huge moment in my life. Um, and it happened four days before Christmas. And then within five months, I'd bought a, quit my job, bought a one-way plane ticket to New Zealand and left the country. Kind of, it was two things. It was like the last gift my mum gave to me was the freedom to go and travel. Because um, I never would have kind of spent years away from home while she was alive. And then I think it was also a little bit of a case of kind of just... I need to get out of here. So I went to New Zealand, got myself a job in a, in a flare cocktail bar. It was so much fun. It was so vibrant, um, so exciting. And then one day this guy came into the bar and he told me about this cocktail competition that they were doing. So I, I spent kind of a good three, four weeks kind of crafting this cocktail to enter this competition. And I submitted the recipe and they really liked it. Um, and they invited me as one of the top 10 to go and perform on stage at the Auckland Regionals. And I managed to, to kind of make the top two and then go on to represent New Zealand um, at the 42 Below Cocktail World Cup. And that was kind of my first real insight and realization that this could be like a really big career that could take me around the world. This could be something really, really amazing. Then carried on, did some more competitions, managed to get myself a job running the best bar in Auckland, a little bar called Sweet. Um, yeah, and everything was going really, really well. Um, but the pressures of the industry, so Sweet was a bar that closed at 5 a.m. in the morning. Lots of the other bartenders would come there for their afterwork drinks. So sometimes you wouldn't get home till 11 o'clock in the morning, maybe have three hours sleep. And you know, 90, 100 hour weeks were not uncommon at that bar. And I, I, looking back now, I had my first breakdown. I went down to work one day and um, was just in a really dark place. Um, drank a bottle of tequila, started abusing the staff, throwing things around. Um, yeah, and never went back to that job. That breakdown there and then and, and the aftermath of it was really kind of, for me, the end of, of that period in New Zealand. Whilst I stayed a little bit longer, I went and worked in a couple of other bars, but everything was such a huge step down from running that bar. And, and that's where my heart was and all of my passion. It was, it was kind of like the beginning of the end of my, my time in New Zealand. And I managed to get a job in India. During my time there, um, 
I was offered the role as a brand ambassador working for Diageo in India. Three years there and I was, I was drained. I told the company I was leaving and I got a call from a, a very senior person in the company and said, um, you're not leaving the company, we'll, we'll find you something else. Um, so I went to join the Africa team. Africa was about a year and I found myself um, as the global brand ambassador for a, a small little Kentucky bourbon brand called Bullet. So yeah, just that, that kind of dream job of, of traveling the world as a global and having that kind of business card as a global ambassador um, took me to 63 countries around the world. But for all of the amazing opportunities and experiences that job gives you, there is also a very difficult side to that job. And it's a side that not very often is, is talked about. And it's the impact on your, on your health, your personal well-being that that job um, demands. You know, I would take 70 to 100 flights a year. Sometimes I would spend 200 and 250 days on the road um, away from home. Sometimes it, it seemed like, is, is there even a point renting an apartment in London, like spending all this money? I was existing on a life of, of almost semi-permanent jet lag. Um, my sleep patterns were just all over. There, were no, there was no pattern to it. It was just all over the place. You know, sometimes I would go a week with only sleeping three hours a night and it would be like fly into London, land at Heathrow, get on the tube for an hour to get home, maybe get three hours of sleep, repack, unpack and repack my bag, get back on the tube, go back to the airport, get on a plane, go somewhere else, and then land, go to the hotel. The loneliness and the isolation, you are constantly either on your own at airports, on planes, in taxis, in hotel rooms, or you're having these kind of um, intermediate relationships with people. You know, it's like these five minute friendships where you might see people once a year, twice a year, maybe three or four times a year if you're lucky. Um, so you're constantly kind of trying to make new friends. But what you're missing out is the deep, meaningful friendships of people that you've known for a long time that you see on a regular basis. Two thousand and sixteen was my biggest year of travel. I'd done some some really big stints, and I was asked to go and speak at the Athens Bar Show um, in November. And I remember going there, and I was extremely just—I was just empty, absolutely empty before I arrived. Um, and my ex-girlfriend was was from Athens. So I was kind of going there with some expectations of seeing her and, and hoping that she would kind of pick me up a little bit, um, which is not not the right kind of attitude to go there with anyway. And she was super busy and just one thing led to another um, and I just, just fell into the darkest of dark holes. Um, did my presentation and I went back to the hotel room and try to commit suicide. You know how we, we always kind of like look to the future and we think that the future is going to be brighter and better things will happen and we're always excited about the future. And for me it was that complete loss of hope of anything would ever happen again.
There was um, an interview I read with Anthony Bourdain after he passed away, um, and he just kept, there was a line in the interview that just really struck a chord with me, um, and he said, "What do you do when all of your dreams have come true?" We spend so much of our time chasing these dreams, chasing these achievements, thinking that if we can only reach this point and make this happen, then everything will be magical. But then you reach that point. You know, I had that, that job that I'd always wanted, the global ambassador job that I'd always wanted. And I thought that if I got that job, I would be the happiest person. Ever. But then when you get that job, it's like, you have to move on to the next thing. But then there, what happens if there is no next thing? I woke up the next morning and for some reason, and I, I'm still not sure exactly what drove me to do it, um, but I felt the, the compulsion to, to tell my story publicly, to, to open up and, and speak. Maybe it was a cry for help um, and maybe it was a, a frustration that I had been forced to the point of attempted suicide. Um, before I realized anything was wrong. It began with a Facebook post, opening up and, and telling people about this place that I'd been um, and the struggles that I'd had after about a thousand edits of rewriting and rewriting and, and deleting and rewriting and and I hit post and then turn the computer off and then within about 10 minutes my phone just started going crazy with messages from people and, and calls. What really struck a chord with me was all of the messages I got from people and I've still kept every single one of them. People telling me their stories of their attempted suicides, of their depression and their mental health issues. People I either respected extremely in this industry, um, complete strangers, um, and sometimes friends who you know, were utterly surprised that they had, had and still are struggling with things. It was these messages that really kind of made me sit up and and give me the give me the renewed energy that I had I had something else to do. I mean, I've been given a second chance. Um, and that's where the seed for, for Healthy Hospo and what I do now was born. So we had the kind of soft launch for Healthy Hospo in October. And that was, it was very simple, a very basic website with a few articles on it um, and a page where people could go and find out if they needed help, they could find it in whichever country they were in, a list of organizations that they could go and get some more help from. And it was just the idea to start the conversation. Um, and it became, people wrote to me about it a lot and it became quite popular. So then I, I built a, a bigger and better website, which is far more comprehensive. And, and that's the website that's still up today. And we had our official launch in January 15th. Um, we did a big workshop in London, a full day um, health and wellness workshop for the hospital teams. We had a hundred people turn up um, and we spoke about sleep and meditation and nutrition and mental health um, we had some amazing sponsors come in and get on board and the response to that was so incredible um, and the support that 
I've had from the industry into Healthy Hospital and the ideas that, that I have and I want to do has just been the most incredible experience, the most humbling experience to see how everyone has come together and wants to improve the health and wellness in the industry. My favorite part of the website are the personal stories that we post from people who have just turned their lives around. And there's so many of them now that up there. Um, so I, I am just one person in the industry who's kind of championing this and I'm finding out more and more people are coming out and, and really getting behind this. And it's just, it's just been incredible. This, this year has just been so fantastic. That was Tim Etherington Judge, founder of Healthy Hospo. For more information, visit healthyhospo.com. Coming up next, author Kat Kinsman joins us for a frank and honest conversation about anxiety and depression in the hospitality industry. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph Brennan's Redfish Grill, home of the award-winning barbecued oyster poor boy and nine varieties of fresh gulf fish caught and served daily. Lunch, dinner, and private events at 115 Bourbon Street in the French Quarter. Kinsman. I'm the senior food and drinks editor for Extra Crispy. I'm a contributor to Food and Wine magazine. I am the author of Hi, Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves, and I am the founder of a website called Chefs with Issues. While there are many individuals in the hospitality industry who are working to destigmatize mental health issues, few have shared as openly and as vulnerably as Kat Kinsman. In 2014, Kat wrote a blog for CNN about her own lifelong struggle with anxiety. The reception to the piece was so positive that she eventually expanded the blog into a book called High Anxiety, Life with a Bad Case of Nerves. Since Kat lost her friend and associate, Anthony Bourdain, to suicide earlier this year, she's been traveling the country working to create safe spaces and help the industry build networks of support. During my latest conversation with Kat, she emphasized the degree to which social media plays a role in our misconceptions about mental health. I think we're living in a world where people are putting out these avatars of, of success that aren't necessarily true. Yes, you see somebody's life and they're traveling all over the world and they're, you know, in these, these far-flung places. They're eating these fabulous things. They're wearing these fabulous clothes. 
that isn't necessarily reality. That's what they they want you to see. Um, they could be going back to you know their their bed, their you know their hotel, their wherever it is they happen to be, and feeling super crappy, and maybe putting that picture out with something they needed to do to convince themselves that they were okay. You might be looking around and comparing your life to everybody else's, thinking, "Why are they so happy and I'm not? Why are they this and and I'm not?" You don't know that they are necessarily. Everybody's just trying their best. Everybody has a bad day. Everybody has a bad week. Um, for it's just it's a harder struggle for some people um, than others just because of stupid brain chemistry. Um, you know, I'm a pretty public person, and you know, I've been lucky enough to have a you know a career I really like, and um, you know, be a p- pretty public person. People wouldn't necessarily guess unless I told them that I can't always leave my house. That is really hard sometimes when I you know get down into a pit and I have such a bad panic attack. You know, I'm I'm trying to put on my makeup and trying to make myself presentable, and my hands keep fumbling. I drop things, and it's really hard for me to actually like physically leave my house. You just have to remember that everybody struggles no matter what they happen to look like and project in in public. Um, everybody has their moments. It's a difficult subject, but good goodness knows one that you tackled directly head on almost two years ago now in your book, High Anxiety. Um, anxiety, depression, these were things you battled your whole life. Yeah, they really are. And I'm lucky enough that I've had a public platform for a pretty long time now. Um, before my current job, I worked at CNN. I started the food website Etocracy there. And they were forward-thinking and generous enough to let me talk pretty openly about mental health on CNN Living. And what happened from that was I was also the food editor. So I would interview chefs, and they would come in and be talking about their dish, their new restaurant, whatever it happened to be. And we would stop you know, the interview to, you know, change batteries, change, you know, cards, whatever it was. And they, and they would say, you know, hey, could I talk to you for a second about something? And, you know, at first I thought like, OK, they they trust me because of this or that or whatever. And then it happened a second time. And then it happened, started happening more than half of the time. And I thought, you know, there's really, really something going on here that um, people really just aren't talking about. It's incredible how prevalent this is in the hospitality industry. It is and it isn't. Um, I've, what I've found, people always ask, why why this industry more than others? Um, they, you know, they say like, hey, there are a lot of other high-stress uh, professions. There's doctors, lawyers, athletes, all, all of these things. And they have, you know, this, you know huge pressures and all of this. They also have money and resources in a way that people who work in restaurants don't necessarily. What they do have is easy access to cheap, quick solutions. Um, There's always something around and um, there's not a a taboo around it. Like, of course, you're going to have, you know, that extra shift drink. Of course, you're going to go out um, while you're still revved up after work um, because everybody else is doing it as well. Um, You know, it's 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 right there on premises. Um, The other thing is I always say it's a chicken and egg kind of thing, because uh, a lot of people who maybe have these particular issues are drawn to restaurant work um, for some really great reasons. 
it's where they find the family and community that they don't otherwise have um, because, you know, they don't necessarily fit into a traditional, uh, you know, nine to five job. And they find their people working in restaurants and some of the best people in the world uh, work in restaurants. Um, I've talked to people who have OCD and things like that. And the, the order of the kitchen works out really, really well for them. Um, you can go and, and uh, forget yourself in the rhythm of the kitchen sometimes, too, if you were part of this machine that is finely tuned and you're acting as one organism, you can maybe push things out of your head uh, for a little bit and just be part of this amazing brigade that is pushing out this incredible food. It's just a matter of what happens when when that breaks down. And uh, that's where the problems come in. And what happens? What have you seen? I guess the worst thing we see in the industry is suicide. Frankly, I've seen a lot of death. Um, it's uh, seen a lot of death and breakdown, and nobody was talking about it before this. Um, a month after I started Chess with Issues, which was in January of 2016, um, in February, I heard of three different uh, chef owner suicides. One of them was pretty high level. Um, he he was uh, talked about a lot. And then there are two who nobody knows about them. They don't really, unless you live in their region, you don't know what happened. And it's this isn't going to be in the paper. And, you know, it was, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, it's the family's business. People don't necessarily want to talk about it. Um, I started doing the math that if that is the shortest month of the year, and I knew about three different ones, and that's the tip of the iceberg, how many others were there that we don't hear about? Some, a line cook overdosing or somebody um, succumbing to what I call a slow suicide, where they've been using substances for a really long time and eventually they have a single car accident or their heart gives out or they mouth off at the wrong bar. People were dying all of the time and people and it just gets swept under the rug um, for all different kinds of, of reasons. Sometimes it might be considering the family, insurance, taboo. People don't want to necessarily think, hey, that person parties just like me. And oh my God, they don't necessarily want to think about it. And um, suddenly... We couldn't ignore it anymore. Anthony Bourdain killed himself. And uh, that really sent a wake-up call to the industry in a very big way because he is the he was the epitome of the line cook made good in his heart. I truly believe that he he was the person everybody wanted to know or to be. He was grateful for everything that he got. He didn't think of himself as above anyone else. He, uh, you know, he treated people with respect and care. And you could always tell that he felt lucky and grateful to have everything that he did. And he had access and respect and money and opportunity and it's been so heartbreaking for so many of us and especially so many people who entered the profession because of him because they think if he, that's a person who seemingly – you never know – who seemingly had it all and still wanted to end his life, then what the hell kind of chance do I have? I, I think that's very surprising to people because you expect somebody down on their luck, someone that life has mistreated it seemingly unfairly. But – when somebody's really at the top of their game, suicide isn't an option that you expect. A lot of us have bad brains. And that's I, I say this to so 
many people, because I suffer from this myself, our brains lie to us constantly about our worth. Um, some of us have, you know, th these chemical things. So much of these uh, mental conditions are, are 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 chemical in our brain. It's a lot of, you know, thought patterns that we have learned throughout our lives. But some of us have brain chemistry that uh, needs to be regulated. However, it you know it happens to be, or we have to figure out some ways to compensate for it. And if you're a person with a wonky brain, like I am, like I you know, and I don't presume anybody else's um, situation, but you can have achieved. I was talking about with this with a friend earlier today who was telling me that they were feeling the second that they stopped producing work, even for a minute, that they felt like, ah, what good am I? I know that conversation so well. My brain does that um, where I have this balance sheet. And I think I haven't produced anything today. What good am I? Mm -hmm. But also you don't have to justify your existence. But I think if you're, I mean, again, I can't presume to know, but if you're in a position where you have all of these things, the expectations are so incredibly high and you have a lot of people depending on you. And um, I think we need to talk about hotel rooms um, because so many of these things happen in hotel rooms while people are on, while they're traveling, while they're isolated. It can seem like the most glamorous thing in the world. Like, hey, I'm in a hotel room in, you know, whatever city or country or whatever it is happens to be. Well, if you're there alone, it yeah. can be the loneliest thing in in the world. You know, I've been traveling since Tony's death. I've uh, been traveling a lot around the country, getting together in rooms with uh, people in the hospitality industry, close the door, tell everybody to put their phones away, um, no press, and we're just going to talk about uh, what is going on. And that is, I've seen some incredibly powerful things come out of that. I've seen people feel like they're no longer isolated, that they're like, wait, I thought I was the only one. Um, I've seen movement come out of it. I've seen some really special things happen out of it. Um, but I have that conversation and then I go back to my hotel room by myself and my brain is buzzing and stuff. And, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to have, you know, people a text away and stuff. But if I were in a, in a bad state, it, it can get kind of scary in your own brain sometimes. And, you know, I am so extraordinarily lucky that I have a really great support system and therapists and people a text away. And I run a Facebook group for chefs um, that I know I could just put out a message there and people would listen. But if you don't necessarily have that and if you're in a bad state and that little flicker of light doesn't go on, um, you know, a life can be lost. No matter how bad you're feeling, if you just can reach out to someone that river really flows both ways. I think that's probably the most important thing everybody needs to know is that none of us are truly alone. And it's an act of generosity to people to you know to let them see you not at yet your best because I think there are so many of us. I think a lot of people have this impulse and especially people in hospitality that you have to take care of everybody else. Letting somebody else take care of you is the, that gift of vulnerability is actually that's pretty important. Well, you did the most incredibly generous thing by being brave enough to write high anxiety <laughs> so that you gave us a glimpse of your life and shared your struggles. And thank you for that because I think it makes it easier for everyone. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate anyone who wants to read or listen to it. Y'all are seeing my heart there.
That was author and mental health activist Kat Kinsman. There is a 24-hour helpline available if you'd like to talk with someone. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. But sometimes talk isn't possible. So now there's a 24-hour text line to reach out to for help as well. The Crisis Text Line. Simply text pound 741-741 to begin the conversation. You'll find the links on our website at poppytooker.com. I'm Charlotte Voisey, Director of Advocacy for William Grant & Sons. When we last caught up with Charlotte Voisey at Tales of the Cocktail in 2017, she was a brand ambassador for William Grant & Sons. Today, she is their first director of advocacy and is making significant changes in the way the company presents itself to the public. That was quite evident at this year's Tales, where we caught up with her on a rainy Wednesday evening just before the legendary William Grant opening party was about to begin. Charlotte, would you please explain your new position with William Grant? Because the last time we spoke, you were merely a brand ambassador. (laughs) (laughs) Merely a brand ambassador. Well, now I'm a brand ambassador who's all grown up. Um, So it's now my pleasure at William Grant & Sons to look after the team of brand ambassadors. So that's kind of elevated my position to what we call Director of Advocacy. But what that really means is I still get to look after all the bartender relationships, so the big parties, the events, education, uh, things like Tales of the Cocktail still fall in my wheelhouse, so that's the good news. So um, for this year at Tales of the Cocktail, with all of the change that's happened, um, not only with Tales this year, but just the mood of the industry in general, at William Grant & Sons, we felt like we needed to be really aware and supportive and contribute positively to the industry. We have this tremendous platform, which is the Wednesday night party. You know, 1,500 people come along, so we have this great audience to talk to. So we wanted it to really mean something this year. So we decided to go alcohol-free, spirit-free. Spirit-free in New Orleans. I mean, this is a huge radical move for an event that is basically an alcohol-centric event. Yeah, and that is exactly why we wanted to do it here. It's the biggest platform we have as a company anywhere in the world, any time of the year. So it's when the message would be heard the loudest. My analogy is, you may know, like Alicia Keys went makeup free, right, a a while ago. It's like, if you're going to do that, do it on your wedding day to show that you really mean it. And this is our biggest moment, and we really mean it. What has the reaction been? It's been overwhelmingly positive. Most people have admitted that it's a big, bold, brave move that was not something that they thought was was coming. They were surprised. A couple of people have been a little bit confused. You know, we're here to celebrate the cocktail. But what I've tried to explain is that a cocktail doesn't have to be alcoholic. You know, we're a gathering of beverage professionals. We should be masters of our craft in spirits, in wine, in beer, in non-alcoholic drinks as well, in service, in hospitality, everything. So tonight we're focusing on spirit-free. Tell me how in the world you design a party, a party that starts at 9.30 at night. It's a late night gathering. 
How do you do that with no alcohol and entertain and please the audience? So the heart and soul of this party, um, and this year's no different, it's always been this way, has been the connections between people and the camaraderie that we have between our ambassador team and with the bartender community. People think that we gather to drink, but in actual fact we gather to see each other, to hug it out, to chat, to share ideas, to meet mentors, to catch up on what in some cases is a year without seeing these people. So it's the relationships, it's the social moment. All of that still applies. And we'll still be serving delicious things to drink and eat. They just, it, it, it won't be with alcohol. There are several major brands in your portfolio. So in the past, each drink would be designed yeah. to show off whichever one mm-hmm. of the liquors that you're promoting. Mm-hmm. How do you do this with an alcohol-free drink? With a little help from our friends. So there's a wonderful young lady called Julia Momos in Chicago. She's a bartender and recently has made her name in what she calls spirit-free cocktails. She has dedicated a lot of her talent and passion into how to create beautifully complex, balanced, interesting, delicious cocktails that are spirit-free. So I called her and said, I need your help because the expectations for this party are very high. And we can't just be serving water or juices or, you know, cute cold brew and that kind of stuff. We need to deliver excellence in cocktails, but we need them to be spirit-free. And the recipes she has created specifically for tonight have blown me away, and I cannot wait for everyone else to try them. Charlotte, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us on Louisiana Eats. It's always a treat when we can capture you for a little conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Charlotte Wasi, Director of Advocacy for William Grant and Sons. What is the empty hour? When is it? And why is it called that? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zatarans. Are you podcasting Louisiana Eats yet? If not, it's time to subscribe. Podcast listeners have access to full-length interviews with chefs like Edward Lee, Donald Link, and Michael Galata, along with new material that's never hit the airwaves before. Just visit poppytooker.com to subscribe. And while you're there, check out our new videos by filmmakers Marion Gay and Jonathan Evans. Now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What is the empty hour? When is it? And why is it called that? I first heard of it during the Beyond the Bar programming at this year's Tales of the Cocktail. 
The empty hour is a term being used in the hospitality industry to describe that first hour when your restaurant or bar shift ends. You're too revved up from work to possibly just go home and go to sleep. Consequently, many bad choices are made during the empty hour. Some drink it away, which will often rev you up instead of wind you down. Some are hungry and choose to eat a big, usually unhealthy meal. That'll put you to sleep, but research shows that eating after 10 o'clock at night will often bring on adult diabetes. So how do you cope with the empty hour in a healthy way? Some chefs, like Michael Galata of MoFo and Maypop, run it away, literally. Michael often goes for a run after work, accompanied by his big dog. Maybe something that's not necessarily a good idea, unless you're a man with a dog. Some bar and restaurant owners in New York are trying to cope with the empty hour by offering yoga classes after work on premise. Also, there's a move afoot to give alternatives to the usual shift drink. Some places are offering a cash alternative, which, if tucked away, could provide some real R&R in the form of a vacation or other leisure activity. In any case, the empty hour is a problem that luckily is getting some attention as the entire hospitality industry searches for healthy choices and a better way of living. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is Don Lee. I'm a member of the Tales of the Cocktail Grants Committee for the Tales of the Cocktail Foundation, and I am also one of the owners of Existing Conditions in New York City. In July 2018, the Tales of the Cocktail Foundation announced the recipients of its first-ever grants program, which allocates hundreds of thousands of dollars to organizations that educate, advance, and support the global spirits community. The Grants Advisory Committee is governed by a dozen of the industry's best and brightest minds, so it's only natural that Don Lee would be among them. Don is no stranger to tales, having been involved for nearly a decade as the head of the Cocktail Apprentice Program. I asked Don to talk about the new grants program and comment on tales past and present. Tales has always been a thing that is in flux, always something that's trying to be better. Every year before, we tried to make tales better for all the guests, all the attendees, all the people involved. And this year, we're doing it even more so with more focus on how we can give back to the community. I think the, the biggest difference between then and now is that before, we just tried to put on a good show. And now we're trying to put on a good show that really is listening to the community, what the community needs, and then to give back in a way that the community really feels is going to do the most good. I'm particularly fascinated by this wellness element that is being put forward because the hospitality industry is renowned for lack of support services. There's very little access to health insurance, certainly mental health. This is a big focus this year. And what are your thoughts about that? It's really important that we make every part of our lives, whether it's our work or our lives at home, sustainable. 
And it's just something that we need to do professionally within the hospitality industry. For so many years, this has been a place for people who don't fit in other places to come and find refuge. But in that refuge, we didn't have any of these services, as you, as you said. We don't have regular access to health care or to mental health care in particular. But it's something that we should have. It's something that we need to advocate for for ourselves. And if no one is going to give it to us from the outside, we have to find a way to provide it for ourselves internally. And that's what we're trying to do now. We are more awake. We are more aware of the issues that we have. And we can no longer just keep our head in the sand and not deal with the issues that we have. Neil Bodenheimer said something very interesting to me the other day that I've been turning over in my mind. I am sure that you would agree with me that this uh, whole craft cocktail movement is still at a very young age overall in the world. And Neil pointed out to me that this has been an industry fueled by a lot of money, um, received with a great deal of success, and that perhaps what we're seeing and experiencing here is the time that the craft cocktail industry grows up. To a certain extent, I would agree with that, but I would also say that the issue isn't so much the craft cocktail industry needs to grow up, it's the fact that the craft cocktail industry is still only less than 1% of the larger industry at large. So if we say that you know we need to be a better example for ourselves, that's fine, but we also need to think not only about the craft cocktail industry, but for all the bars that are out there, for all the restaurants that are out there, to be a better example for everybody. And yes, we have been very privileged in that we have the attention of big brands. Big brands want to spend money at these top accounts. And it is prestigious for them to say that their product is being used at these best bars in the world. If we could turn that focus into, hey, yes, these are great bars, but the same issues that these best bars have are the issues that the worst bars have, and even worse, we need to raise everybody up. We need to make sure that everyone has health care, everyone has access to mental health care, everyone is aware of these issues, everyone needs to be responsible about drinking and taking care of their patrons. This is something that, you know, maybe we are getting grown up uh, about in the small 1%, but it's, we need to bring this to everybody. And that means that we need to care when someone is depressed. We need to care when somebody has been overserved. We just need to care. And we can't just look at each other as, oh, that's not me. That's not my friend. That's not my family. That's not my industry. We are all people. We need to recognize everybody's humanity and all take care of each other. Don, tell me a little bit about your work with the Grants Committee and what you all are doing and what good you hope will come of this. The Grants Committee, it's a new thing. We started with the new foundation aspect of Tales of the Cocktail. We have been given a, a huge seed fund by the Solomon Group, a budget of 250000 that we're looking to give away to the right people. And that was kind of a phase one, just tell us what you want to do. And then we went to a phase two. We said, okay, that's a great idea, but now show us how you're going to execute. How are these dollars going to be used? Who's going to receive them? How many people are going to impact? What is this really going to do? And from that, we were able to create a, a final selection of a few people who will receive uh, that first round of seed funding to help them and to get them going on their projects. Some of them are people who are, already have a foundation, who already have a, a 501c3 and are trying to just get extra money to amplify what they're already doing. There's some people that are looking to receive just the basic you know, acknowledgement that they're doing something so that they can get the stamp from Tails to say, oh, this is legitimate, and so they can get additional funding and help from other people. So it's all sorts of interesting people doing different things that hopefully the Tails umbrella can just give them a little extra boost. 
one of the challenges of the grants committee also is trying to impact the most number of people. There's been amazing applications where I know that with the money, this person can impact 10 people. The question is, can they impact 100? Can they impact 1,000? There is an amazing Pilates instructor who has done amazing work with, with the bar community already. She has helped people you know, who can't bartend anymore be able to get up out of their beds and go to work and function every day again. And her work is so singular that it really requires her to physically spend time with a person. How can we translate that to more than one person, you know, more than 10 people, more than 100 people that can attend a seminar? And we're, we're going to work with her. We're going to figure out a way that we can make this something that is scalable. That was Don Lee of Existing Conditions and member of the Tales of the Cocktail Foundation Grants Committee. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. If you found today's episode compelling, catch our full interview with Kat Kinsman on our podcast site at poppytooker.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and Rouse's Markets. Special thanks to our newest sponsor, Don Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don Seafood in Lafayette, Gonzales, Denham Springs, Hammond, Covington, or Metairie. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and with support from the Palace Cafe, home of the weekend jazz brunch featuring your own Bloody Mary bar, located in the historic Whirline Music Building on Canal Street. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to producers Joe Schreiner, Sarah Holtz, and Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Don't forget to find our recipes and see what we're up to at poppytooker.com. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs>